0: the south is a deeply mystical place the swamps are full of dark secrets the pine forests are plagued with the unknown there's something dark and otherworldly lurking in the graveyards of the old churches long abandoned the southern gothic genre is you know kind of the thing that encapsulates this mystery and, and uh, i guess mythos of the of the south you know, ghosts in every old mansion, monsters in every bayou, legends in every sleepy little town. It's always battles of light and darkness, angels and demons, hatred and love. There, there's poetry in it all. And if you haven't guessed as to our theme this month, Tennessee Williams was a muse of that genre of the and of the South in general. Today's play may not have been his most well-received work, uh, but it is a glimpse into the heart of the Deep South and more importantly, the heart of man, and his pursuit of life and love. Hello, I'm Will Cloud, and you're listening to The Script Library, the only place on the internet to listen to someone explain plays really poorly. (laughs) Today we're talking about another Tennessee Williams piece, Battle of Angels. Or, Or technically, Orpheus Descending, but my script has Battle of Angels, but it's It's, it's, it's complicated. Um, you know, we're, we're going to go with Battle of Angels. Um, you know, if you're really a theater nerd, you might be thinking, well, that play came out like way before the other two that you've done. It was Tennessee Williams' first produced play. Technically, yes, you'd be correct. Battle of Angels in its original form premiered in December of 1940, um, Tennessee Williams got, like, a grant to write it, it premiered in Boston, it went really poorly, um, he was reworking on it, uh, all through the 50s, and Orpheus Descending, which was the complete overhaul and rewrite, premiered in 1957 on Broadway, that also did really poorly, and the script kind of, you know, it kind of petered out, and, and, no one ever really considered it anything special. Uh, There was a movie uh, in, like, I believe, 1960 called The Fugitive Kind that also went really poorly. Um, uh, You know, it's not his worst piece, but it certainly didn't have the, uh, I guess, the, the wide appeal that Streetcar Glass Menagerie did. Now, the addition of the script that I have, and the one that I believe is currently being, like, the the current license for Battle of Angels, uh, is, I believe, some sort of, maybe not a full amalgamation of the two, uh, but it was a revised version of Battle of Angels produced in, like, the 1970s. Um, So, it's got the three-act structure of Orpheus Descending, but... The characters are the same from Battle of Angels. It This is Battle of Angels. We're just going to go with that. Um, I'm rambling at this point. It's it's a little confusing, but he, here we are. Uh, something that I'll really try to focus on later is, is how different this play feels from the other two that we've discussed uh, in previous weeks. Uh, it, it's kind of the... You can kind of tell it's... It feels like one of those passion projects where somebody's worked on it for their whole life. And in Tennessee Williams' case, it was, goodness, nearly two decades that he adjusted and tweaked and revised the script. You know, sometimes with these passion projects, they, they get messy and they get complicated because somebody spends so much of their time and so much of their energy on it, you know the artist kind of gets lost in the work, and I I almost wonder if that's what happened here. Uh, but enough conjecture on, on artistic expression, let's dive into the content, characters, and then I'll get into the synopsis. Uh, there's a smattering of curses and crude words throughout, um, obviously tobacco and alcohol usage, maybe not as much as previous plays. The N-word is used quite a bit, um, essentially the town that this takes place in is a sun like it's a sundown town um if you're not familiar with that term or that that concept sundown towns or sundown counties were essentially places uh where black people were not allowed after sundown um and it got messy if they happened to be caught in the town or the county after sundown it's a really dark messed up part of our history uh like, from the, 19, like, from even, even as far, like, the 1950s and 60s, um, Williams addresses racism pretty well, uh, through his main character, and, well, his main two characters, really, but because of the time, because of the place, you know, I'm not going to excuse his use and his writing of the word, um, yeah but it 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 fits the time and the place um so just be aware of that um there's also quite a lot of like there's quite a bit of sexual theme and and quite a few um steamy moments if you will um and some conversation on suicide and 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 all that um this is a very this is a very steamy play we'll just we'll we'll leave it at that um let's see uh Hmm. So the best way I can describe kind of the character dynamic in this show is if Starbuck from The Rainmaker met the cast of Steel Magnolias. Um, you've got this incredibly dynamic, uh, charismatic, leading man and a bunch of middle-aged women. It is, it's interesting. Um, it's like watching a, a season of The Bachelor. Um oof. Our Starbuck is Valentine Xavier, a wanderer in a snakeskin jacket. Um, he's kind of been compared to Stanley in his sort of animal-like energy, but fortunately, unlike Stanley, he's he's kind and he understands people. Um, he also understands kind of his power, his, uh, you know, how kind of, I guess, how charismatic he is, and so he doesn't want to hurt other people. Um, he's very much the Orpheus of this myth, I I don't know if I mentioned. Well, you would you would assume from the secondary title this is a sort of a reimagining of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, the the tra- Greek myth. Um, you know, then there is let's see, there's Dolly and Beulah, two of the ladies in the town, complete gossips. V. Talbot, uh, the sheriff's wife. Um, She's kind of an interesting character, because she has these, like, visions, and then she'll, like, paint the apostles as she sees them in her visions, and, you know, it's kind of this, there's this weird through line of her paintings, and and how it affects the story, and and all that. Uh, Sandra, or Cassandra, um, is, she's kind of inspired by the mythological counterpart. Uh, Cassandra in Greek myth... uh, if i remember the stories correctly she was a prophetess who nobody listened to and so she was saying all these things about doom and the end of the world and stuff and nobody listened to her uh until it came true uh she sandra in this play is very much enamored with valentine um but it's kind of it's kind of interesting and we'll talk about it more they're kind of the two the only two supernatural characters in the show so it's 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 actually kind of cool. well, not the only two but they're the two main supernatural characters. Uh, let's see. then there's smaller characters, obviously husbands to pretty much all the women who who play a decent part in the show. loon, an older black man and the conjure man. Uh, he it's hard to say he's even a character and it's hard to kind of explain who he is he's really more of this just like dark presence on stage. Um and finally uh let's well finally we have two two more characters left. Uh Jabe he's definitely the Hades of this Greek tragedy and we'll we'll get into more of of him and how he exhibits that later. Uh and his Eurydice or or maybe even his Persephone is Myra, uh the owner of the general store. If you're familiar with Orpheus Descending or or uh, the Fugitive Kind, this character is named Lady. Uh, now let's see if I can unravel this plot. I I'll be honest, everyone. I uh, I kind of had a hard time with this, and it's it, it's just all on me. I mean, it's the plot itself isn't super complicated. It's more the the dialogue and the the conversations that make this story rich, not you know, the plot itself. Uh, But let's see. Uh, We we open with with Beulah, Dolly, Sandra, all in the mercantile, uh, which is where all of this play is set, uh, gossiping about things going on in the town. Uh, They talk about Myra's husband, Jabe, and how he's coming home from the hospital, but the doctors don't have much hope for him living. Uh, Let's see. They they talk about V and her paintings of the apostles. Uh, Of course, then they're interrupted by V arriving with a stranger, Val, uh, he claims his car broke down, and since V's husband was the sheriff, she offered him a room in the jail. Now, Sandra immediately latches onto him, claiming that you know she needs help with a quote-unquote knock in her engine. Um, she insists that she knows Val from New Orleans, but he denies it. Uh, Val asks about getting a job, but as Myra and Jade return home, Sandra, for some absurd reason, fires off her gun. Uh, Val takes it from her, but of course, he's caught holding the gun, and as Myra enters, this will be in, this will be important later because it it kind of it's kind of a a, a portrait of what what may happen later. Uh, Val uh, stays past closing and convinces Myra to give him a job. Of course, she's wary of him, but you know. He, he tells her that he slaps Sandra for making advances. She, you know, she's a, she's a touch more lenient. Uh, you know, the next day, Val begins work as a clerk uh, in the mercantile, but it's painfully obvious that he doesn't know what he's doing, but all of the women in town are just head over heels for him. Uh, Sandra also returns and gets into a fight with Val, Um, Myra takes him to task for the way that he interacts with the girls, making claims that he's seducing them, things like that, uh, and of course he denies any wrong intentions, um, but instead kind of shares a story of his first love and how he almost felt like he was on the edge of something tremendous. The following morning, a man arrives at the mercantile asking for Myra. It's David, her, like, former lover and her greatest heartbreak. Uh, v comes in, uh, claiming that she'd been blinded by the sun, and, and Val does his best to assist her. Uh, she she has brought in a painting of a church with a red steeple, uh, kind of an ominous sign. Um, but of course, as he helps her, she grows agitated and, and leaves. Uh, Myra, who, you know, obviously her husband was in a lot of pain, she'd been giving him morphine, uh, She worries over the delusions he's having. Uh, He claims that she wants to kill him. Val confronts her, revealing that she's not in love with Jabe, never was, never will be, and that she actually does hope for his death. Uh, In the next scene, uh, the sheriff uh, stops a black man, Loon, uh, outside the store and threatens him with forced labor and a chain gang for, quote, being a vagrant. Uh, Val, of course, swoops in with with $10 and and some story about Loon teaching him guitar to save the man. This ticks off the sheriff and most of the other men who start kind of beating up on Val. Myra steps in and rescues him before things get too out of hand, but Val has obviously made a target of himself. Um, He also also reveals uh, to Myra that he's wanted for rape. Uh, A woman in Texas... That he kind of kind of had a had a fling with uh, has accused him of assaulting her, even though of course you know of course he he denies it um Myra says that you know she'll defend him and try to protect him from the town um and then they they end up running off to do some uh some things that uh the the lights go dark for before we see them uh weeks pass it's good Friday um you know, of course, Myra and and Val have been together all this time, and and we'll leave it at that. Uh, Myra is visited by the conjurman, a uh, kind of a dark, mysterious force that threatens the joy she feels at being with Val. Um, uh, side note: the conjurman is like just this this tall, imposing black guy, like super old, like long white hair. Um, and he sells like trinkets and and totems and things like that and I don't really know how to explain his character, but it's just he just shows up at random times and and freaks the other characters out it's great uh, let's see uh, news comes quickly to her of Sandra running around in town like she's crashed her car going crazy like dancing in the streets uh, now before. You know, before anybody can do anything about it, Jay starts throwing a fit upstairs, screaming that Myra's going to kill him in front of Myra's friends. She leaves to go get the doctor. V runs in, again claiming she's been struck blind by some vision. Val tries to help her, but the sheriff comes in, and he sees Val with his hands on his wife. Uh, he threatens Val, promising that if he doesn't leave the town by sunup the next day, they will kill him. Now the conjure man then comes to Val and freaks him out. And then Sandra runs in immediately after. She howls about some prophecy and how Val's time is up. Uh, She tries one more time to sort of, you know, force herself on Val, but Myra returns and and obviously stops that. Uh, Before they can address the situation, the sheriff returns with the woman from Texas. Uh, They interrogate Myra, but she, of course, defends and, and has hidden Val, so, you know, they move on. Val tries to leave, but Myra insists that she come with him. Now, After years of being barren, and years of hoping for something tremendous of her own, she reveals that she's pregnant. The good news is quickly overshadowed by Jape, who has uh, gotten off of his deathbed and is standing at the top of the stairs looking like the devil himself. Uh, Val takes this as a chance to try to run away uh, and starts stealing from the cash register. Myra, in a panic, screams at him to stop stealing, and this gives Jabe the opening he needs. He fires a gun at the couple and kills Myra and the unborn baby. Val, horrified, tells Jabe that he's going to tell the police. Jabe, of course, responds by telling him that Val's Val's the one stealing, and he'll be the one that uh, they arrest. Um, it's, again, kind of a, kind of a, uh, you know, if you look back to the, the opening scene where Val took the gun from Sandra, but incriminated himself and looked like, you know, he shot off those rounds, well, here we are again. Uh, Val runs into the back room looking for escape, but not before the mob enters, and, uh, you know. Uh, the mercantile, you know, with a with a rope and a blowtorch ready to kill him, um, and it's implied that they do. Uh, Sandra finds his snakeskin jacket and walks off into the night with it. End of scene. End of act. End of play. Uh, now it's time for that part of the show where we talk through some scenes you might want to use for auditions, classwork, etc. Uh, this play is surprisingly light on good monologues. Um, what I mean by that is that, like. Most of the monologues in the show are storytelling monologues, characters recounting past events. Uh, They're beautiful, don't get me wrong, but they're not necessarily the best for auditions. Uh, There are at least a couple of really good scenes, uh, but it's more of an ensemble show. Like, a lot of the dialogue ends up being more between three and four and five characters than one-on-one. That being said, here's a few things I did find. Uh, In scene one, starting on page 18 of my script... Uh, there's Myra and Val's first interaction. Uh, the dialogue is really rich, the motives are pretty clear, uh, the objectives are strong. Um, you know, Val tries to convince Myra he's worthy of having a job, and she pre- pretty quickly figures out that he can't tell flip-flops apart from Sperry's. Uh, it, it's almost innocent, sweet, um, certainly not as dark as the show is going to get. Uh, Sandra is one of the better, more interesting characters in the show, And she gets this really cool, powerful monologue on uh, page 29 of my script, speaking not just to her disastrous nature, uh, but it's really kind of a a conversation about sort of the aristocratic South in general. Uh, It's powerful and fiery and melancholy all at the same time. Immediately following that, pages 30 to 37, is this great scene between Myra and Val. Myra, This is when Myra confronts Val about his behavior, and and Val tries to explain the way he is and, and you know, explain his, his thoughts on love and all of that. Uh, it, it's pretty long. You could probably cut it up. But, um, again, strong characters, really good dialogue. And the dynamic between Myra and Val is just a, a cool dynamic. Oh, goodness. Let's see. This probably won't be the last time I say this, but Battle of Angels is genuinely one of my favorite Tennessee Williams plays. Is it his best? Not by a mile. Uh, but I adore the Orpheus Eurydice myth. Uh, and spoilers, this won't be the last time we look at an adaption of that story. Um, let's just say I may or may not have the Hades Hadestown scripts uh, in, in the queue. <laughs> um, and, you know, Williams really dialed up the poetic language on this. Uh, you know, of course, I get why it flopped. It is thick and syrupy. Uh, the play is like the spring morning air in Mississippi. Like, that's what it feels like. Um, you know, it's, and it's it's super dark and tragic. I mean, you know, it deals with lust and passion in a way that would make um, many 50s audiences blush. You know, honestly, I kind of got lost in it, trying to critique the play, trying to, you know, find talking points. It kind of sucks you in, like, like, again, like the mud down in the bayou, you know, um... I do want to talk characters, though. Uh, obviously, writing this, I was I was not struggling to find things to talk about because I was just still kind of so overwhelmed by it. But um, I do want to talk characters. Uh, s- let's start with Sandra. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, she's inspired by Cassandra of Greek myth. Um, she's really she's really kind of an antagonist to Val. You know, another demigod amongst mortals. You know, she's wild and powerful and dangerous, completely unpredictable you know she she's really a far cry from the stellas and even the blanches like she talks about being fragile and she talks about you know all this but but no like she's incredibly powerful and and wild and free um you know I'm pra- i don't think i'm reading too far into this but uh, you know sandra really strikes a chord as a as a symbol of the south um you know i guess it it can be hard i guess if you're not from the south or if you you haven't really studied the area uh, but there's there's a pride and a and a certain energy that radiates from the south specifically sort of the aristocratic uh, south um you know i've gone uh, you know gone with the wind has popped up quite a bit this season uh but it it's kind of a good benchmark for this aesthetic um Sandra really kind of sums up the pride and the wildness um of the, I guess the antebellum aristocratic South, but she's also very aware of kind of the self destruction of that society. Um, something kind of kind of playing off of Sandra and, and Val too. Uh, I love that there there's really no mention of the supernatural, uh, obviously other than V's ramblings and her paintings. But it is so clear, and, and Tennessee Williams makes no bones about the fact that, like, Sandra and Val are demigods. Like, they are, they are beyond a typical mortal existence. Like, you know, obviously nothing beyond the realm of the stage, but they are just operating on a different level than the rest of the characters. I guess, same with same with Conjure Man, same with Jabe at the end. Like, it's almost like they have transcended humanity and it's not you know it's not from any kind of enlightenment it's just they are they are on a different plane um you know i mean i guess it's kind of a kind of part of the southern gothic genre um you know like you can you can nail the aesthetic the 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 visual aesthetic all that but when you start throwing in the supernatural and it's just kind of there like it's just kind of part of the landscape like that's that's when stuff really pops, like, you know, goodness, I mean, well, come on, what, what southern city doesn't have a ghost tour, you know, so, it's just the way that he writes these characters, so, so grounded, and yet, they are just, you can tell, like, they are, they are not, they're not playing by human rules, um, speaking of the conjure man, though, uh, you know he he's not he's not Hades he's not the standin obviously Jabe is but um I I so wish I knew more about who he is and, and what he what his purpose was um because he's just he's just got this cool vibe and he just he shows up and he you know he doesn't scare Sandra but he scares all of the other characters like they are all like afraid of him and you know I I don't really know William's intent with that character but it's such a cool unique um element uh to the story and to the to the play but um yeah I really I really wish that I I knew more about his character um and yeah you know I I mentioned Jabe as part of this the supernatural element literally the the show notes describe him when he enters at the end of the play as a living symbol of death um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, but it's just, it's just really cool. I love when supernatural stuff like this gets thrown into it, an otherwise very grounded story and, oh, it's, it's so good. <laughs> um, I wish I had more time and energy to do deep research into Williams and his views on things like race, but this podcast is a hobby and I'm lazy. Uh, um, I'm sure the research has been done and, and, you know, if somebody is, uh, more, uh, intrigued by it than I am, then, then please let me know if, if there's any good books or any good studies on, on Williams and so his social views. Uh, now, we do get into a look, uh, of, of his feeling on racism in America in this show. Um, he definitely has a dim view of the South's judicial system, um, and certainly how they treated downtrodden, or just in general, how they treated black people. Um, he also had Myra showing great kindness to, to to black uh patrons and black characters in the show um you know i don't i don't know how tied down he was by the times he was living in but Williams seems to have been pretty pretty progressive um in his views on racism and we 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 get to see that in this show obviously this show was written back in the early 50s and he's already showing how you know black people should be treated as human beings um uh, there's also a, a number of interesting points about religion. Um, you know, the parallels between V and her portrait of the apostles and Jesus. Uh, she has a painting of a of a church with a red steeple that uh, the characters sort of mock. But it, it, again, it's kind of it's kind of ominous, I guess. Uh, and even Val and his eventual demise on Good Friday. Uh, there are these themes of, of life and death and, and how love is kind of the only thing that makes people alive. That, I mean, really kind of ties into a lot of a lot of religious elements. Um and I find it interesting too that that Val has the the power to unlock this in others but he himself is never able to find contentment and happiness and and love. He's always on as he said in in you know in the play he's always on like the edge of something tremendous. You know and it, it, that desire, that push to find this thing ultimately leads to his demise. Um, but it is interesting because Myra does find it. And she does find that life and that love, and even in death, she's happy. Um, I guess the best way to to describe the this play, uh, "Battle of Angels," is to streetcar named Desire, like a New York cheesesteak is to a nicely grilled filet mignon. Obviously, the steak is more nourishing, arguably like more desirable, all that more complex, but the cheesecake is rich. And powerful and delicious, and you are blown away by how the sweetness just kind of assaults your taste buds. Battle of Angels does not have the best pacing, nor does it have the best story. But holy cow, I always leave just stunned every time I every time I read this play. Uh, the poetry of the dialogue, the aesthetic, um, th- you know, the modernization of Greek tragedy. Uh, you know, as a play reader, play reader, this is this is my dessert. I, I, I mean, as a writer, as a as an actor, like this is dessert. Um, like I said, I totally get why it didn't do well, but my goodness, like this is the play that got Williams foot in the door. Like, Battle of Angels was his first play that was produced. He got this big grant to write it and for it to be, be made and all this. And without it, we probably wouldn't have all the other plays that did succeed, and were amazing. Um, You know, the updated version didn't do so well, Orpheus Descending, uh, because it had to compete with, like, six other Broadway hits by the same author. Like, seriously, in the span of ten years, there was Summer and Smoke, The Rose Tattoo, Camino Real, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Orpheus Descending, Garden District, and Sweet Bird of Youth, all on Broadway, over, like, over the course of, of you know, like, the 50s. And this, of course, was after Glass Menagerie and Streetcar, like, took off on Broadway. So... Yeah, I'm kind of getting off topic, but it's like, I get why the play didn't do well. That doesn't mean that it wasn't good, and, and clearly he revised it and, and updated it, and it was good enough for Broadway. Um, but, you know, I probably should stop rambling and, and stop sharing how much Wikipedia knows about Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Battle of Angels, though, sits in this really fun place. It's not quite as grounded as Streetcar, but not quite as light and airy as Stairs to the Roof. Uh, again, I- I'm biased, uh, these are the kind of stories that I want to write, and I do write, so of course I want to read them, I um, mean, you should want to read them too, and if anyone ever gets the gumption to produce this show near you, go see it, um, like I said, there's a film starring Marlon Brando called The Fugitive Kind, it flopped about as badly as the original play did, um, I've started watching it, and it's, it's not as good as the, the script, but you know, if you want to go watch it, have fun. Um, but in regards to the script, like if you're a fan of Tennessee Williams or if you love Southern Gothic or both, like go get it, go read it, have it in your, have it in your, uh, library. It's a, it's a good script and it's, it's beautiful. Like I said, I mean, the, the, the dialogue is some of the most beautiful dialogue I think Tennessee Williams ever wrote. Uh, and thank you all again for listening this week. Um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this Tennessee Williams dive next week with Night of the Iguana. Probably, man, that's probably in my top five favorite like straight plays. Period. Um, There's also gonna be a fun surprise next week, but you'll have to stay tuned for that. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and, and spoil what's happening two weeks from now, mostly so that the the version of me writing the script back in September will will get his butt into gear and finish his editing. Um, once we finish talking about Tennessee Williams, I will be doing an episode on my own musical, Campfire. Uh, I'm looking at doing another reading of it soon, hopefully in the next couple of months, and I'm hoping I can collaborate with my writing team and get some music written. Um, but I'll definitely be doing an episode on Campfire, and, um, I'm super excited to, to share more of that show with y'all in the coming months, um, Hopefully, Christopher, if you're listening, uh, this is this is my invitation to you to come talk about campfire with me. Um, same same goes for you, Melissa, if you're if you're listening. But anyway, um, <laughs> as always, if you have suggestions, comments, shows you'd like me to review, or you just want to say hi, uh, especially if like I don't know you previously, like occasionally I will get listeners that I don't recognize where they're from. They're not from like the two or three places I know people are living. So. If we don't already know each other, say hi. Uh, you can do that at the Script Library on Instagram or you can find me at the Will Cloud also on Instagram. Uh, seriously, I'm having a blast working on the show and um, I hope that you're enjoying it. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you for stopping by the Script Library. Cue the exit music that we still don't have resident songwriters on vacation i promise we'll have a theme song by the end of the season i promise okay bye everyone